0: If it's true that we're spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, with no spiritual sight or hearing or understanding, how is it that any of us are able to respond to the gospel? If it's true that lost sinners don't believe in Christ because they cannot believe, because the God of this age has blinded their minds... So that the natural man or woman does not receive the Spirit of God, nor can they know them, because they do come across to them only as foolishness, how is it that some are brought to a place where that which seemed so foolish now becomes the most obvious and real and urgent truth they've ever known? Well the Bible's answer to all of those questions, because we believe that all of those things are true, the Bible's answer to all of those questions is that God himself comes to the sinner. He calls them. And in his call there is life-giving power. Power which regenerates and renews them. And God's spirit enters them. And he enables understanding. He brings conviction of sin, repentance, and faith in Christ. Brings assurance that they are now God's child. And that God is their father. In other words, salvation is from beginning to end all of God. But, and here's a but that many people ask or at least think. If only some are saved and if many are not saved, does that therefore mean that God has done this work only in the saved and has not done that work in those who are not saved? Well, yes. So if that's the case... Why would God not do that work in these, but do that work in others? Because, because these he has chosen, but these he has not chosen. And this is not just a logical argument I'm asking you to follow. It's what the Bible actually teaches. And we call it the doctrine of election. This has long been widely held in the Christian church. Although in recent years, there are those who deny it or who twist it and distort it. But just to show you... That since the Reformation where the evangelical faith, the historical faith of the Christian church was re-established again across Europe at least, let me just show you that this truth has always been there. The the first great summary of Christian doctrine was a, a document put together that's become known as the Westminster Confession of Faith. It was... Produced in 1646 when it was first written. It says this All those whom God hath predestinated unto life, and those only, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. And then it goes on to talk about regeneration, a new birth, and a new heart, and and so on. A few years later, the Baptists put their own confession together, very, very similar to the Westminster Confession. Those whom God hath predestinated unto life, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time, effectually to call by his word and spirit you see the likeness it's exactly the same truth that they're declaring all the lord's people in that time thoroughly convinced of these things church of england actually even earlier than those first two In 1563, they put together a document which is called the 39 Articles of Faith. Within that document, it says this, predestination to life is the everlasting purpose of God, whereby before the foundations of the church were laid, he hath constantly decreed by his counsel secret to us to deliver from curse and damnation those whom he hath chosen in Christ out of mankind to bring them by Christ to everlasting salvation as vessels, do you recognize this phrase from the Bible reading we had? As vessels made to honor. We'll come back to that later. This doctrine of election isn't something new. It isn't something that was invented in the middle of the last century when the banner of truth started republishing all the Puritans. It's been there all the time. It's part of the historic Christian faith that God has chosen to himself, for himself, by himself, those who will come to know Christ. Well, we need to make sure that these things truly are in the scriptures, don't we? So we're going to do a little survey of the scriptures and I'm going to give some comment as we go along and then come to a conclusion at the end. We're going to look at the topic of election in the Old Testament. We're going to look at election taught by Jesus. We're going to look at the election taught by the apostles. And then as part of our conclusion, just think about a few of the objections that sometimes are raised. So first of all, election in the Old Testament... Well, an interesting point about those who deny election in the New Testament is they often seem happy enough to accept it in the Old. And we've just had a story about such an election. We read it in Genesis chapter 12, where God visits Ur of the Chaldees and chose Abram. One man and his family. Now, the word chosen isn't used in those passages. Neither are the words election or predestination. But God came to that city and called out one man and his family and gave a promise to that one man and his descendants. It's fairly obvious that God, for reasons known to him, singled out Abram and chose him and set him aside. Abram was elected by God. And many others in the Old Testament are likewise specifically chosen by God. Here's a few examples. You'll know the names well. Noah. Moses. The judges like Gideon and Samson. Samuel. Remember God calling Samuel in the night in the temple? Samuel actually heard God call him David. All of the prophets. Even Israel. Deuteronomy 7. You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you. To be a people for himself. A special treasure. Above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you. Nor choose you. Because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you, he chose them. These words are repeated many times, especially in Deuteronomy. Now in Romans chapter 9, the verses just before where we read earlier, Paul gives us a commentary on an event that takes place in Genesis 25. So although it's actually a New Testament passage, it's a commentary on the Old Testament. And it concerns the birth of twin boys, Isaac and Jacob. So you might like to have Romans 9 open in front of you. At verse 10. Twin boys have been born to Isaac and Rebekah. That makes these twin boys the grandchildren of Abraham. Now, although they were twins, uh, one twin gets born first, don't they? Esau was the firstborn. And by right, as the firstborn, he was the rightful heir. And he would become head of the household following Isaac's death. But what do we read in Romans 9 as the New Testament commentary on those events? Not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil. So what God is about to do is not based because one boy is being good and one boy is being bad. There's nothing about, the, about anything that these boys have done, not yet being born, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, not because of something these boys have done, but of him who calls, God simply wills to do it because he is God. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. It's going to be the other way round with your two boys. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, But Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Is God wicked or evil or pernicious to have done this and made this choice? Certainly not. Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. And I will have compassion. On whomever I will have compassion. God's choice of Jacob over Israel was not because of anything those two boys had done, either good or bad. God chose Jacob over Israel because God had elected Jacob according to his own purposes and because God is an electing God. And it says in the Bible, God loved Jacob and God hated Esau. Quick word on that. I've heard some Christians say God doesn't hate and he certainly doesn't hate people. Well, the Bible disagrees with you, my friend. I'm sorry. Get out your Bible this afternoon. Look at Romans chapter 9 verse 13 and Malachi chapter 1 verses 2 and 3. And ask the Lord to help you understand that he has a very special electing love and mercy and grace. Reserved only for those whom he has chosen. And that those who are destined for everlasting condemnation. God hates. They are the words of Scripture. If you don't like it, get on your knees and take it up with the Lord. It's his word. Does this make God wicked to behave like this? You might find yourself asking, people are asking the same thing in Paul's day, and he answers the question: absolutely not. God has every right to do this. Why? Because he's God. He chooses who who he will have mercy upon and who he will treat with compassion and others he leaves in their sins. I'll think about that a little bit more when we think about some of the objections that people raise. Throughout the Old Testament, we see God offering salvation and forgiveness of sin to Israel and to anyone else who'll repent. Remember Nineveh? But at the same time, hundreds of thousands are put to death at the hands of the armies of Israel. Why? Because of their sin. It's God's judgment and condemnation. The soul that sins shall die. The wages of sin is death. And so we discover that most Christians have no problem in recognizing and accepting election as we discover it in the Old Testament. The problem is that it still applies when we get into the New. To suggest that election is a continual aspect of God's work. And that we see in the New Testament, God is still exercising his purposes today in election Well, some throw up their hands in horror. But it's the teaching of the word of God and it's as clear as day. You see, the reality is, if God had never chosen us, if God had never determined to save for himself a people, there would be no gospel and there would be no salvation. And there would be no Christians. Because we love darkness rather than light. And we would happily have remained in our sin. Like all the others. That's the reality. And secondly we see that election is taught by Jesus. Matthew 11. All things have been delivered to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. Here is the eternal Godhead, the three in one. They intimately know one another, but who outside of the Godhead can possibly have any knowledge of these things? Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. How is it that you as a Christian are so convinced in the existence and the nature and the works of God because the Son has willed to reveal him to you? That's how you know. That's why you're convinced. So there's no patting yourself on the back saying, what a clever person I am working all this stuff out. That's most definitely what cannot happen when you understand this doctrine because God has done it to you and for you and in you through Christ. And there's no method or scheme or system that you can employ that enables others to see God the Father. There's no path of logical reasoning or argument that can lift that veil from their eyes. No, it's those to whom The Son wills to reveal Himself and His truth and His salvation. It is they who come to Christ. It is they who are saved because Christ reveals Himself to them and opens up all of this wonderful gospel truth to them. Then Jesus in John chapter 6 is recorded as saying these words, All that the Father gives me Will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I should lose nothing, but raise it up at the last day. Note the order of the words, note what Jesus does not say. Jesus does not say, all who decide for themselves to come to me, these the Father will then give me. So they come to me and then God decides to give them to me. That's not what Jesus says. He says, the ones who will come to me are those who the Father has already given me. They're already given to me and they are the ones who come. All who come to Christ are already given to Christ by the Father. So how does the Father know who he's going to give to the Son? Because he's chosen them before time began. A little later in John's Gospel, Jesus is speaking again. You'll know these words well in John chapter 10. You do not believe... He says to these, Because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Isn't this wonderful truth? Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who's given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Now, many people would like to think that what Jesus says is this. You're not a sheep because you don't yet believe. So believe and you'll become a sheep. That sounds reasonable, doesn't it? But it's not what Jesus says. Even before they, were, even before they believed, they were his sheep. Because they were chosen to be sheep. Therefore, because they are sheep, they hear Christ's voice and they follow him. And now they believe. They believe because they are sheep. You, he says, the reason you don't believe is because you're not my sheep. John 15, verse 16, (laughs) nails it. You did not choose me. How much clearer do you want it said? Where does it say in the Bible that I didn't choose God? Well, it's here. You did not choose me. I chose you. It can't be put any clearer or simpler than that, can it? Not only chose you, appointed you. Isn't that glorious? This is Christ speaking. I think we're agreed. He knows the truth. He is the truth. And of course, it comes as no surprise, therefore, to discover that Christ's apostles also taught this doctrine. They learnt it from Christ. Acts chapter 13, and then in 22, election taught by the apostles, primarily Paul, although Acts, of course, is recorded of Paul by Luke. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. Then he said, the God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. Sheep hearing voices again. Goes back to John. The link between a sheep and believing just being expressed in a different way here. You don't believe first. And on account of having believed, become appointed to eternal life. The appointing has already taken place. Those who had been appointed, believed. It's the appointed ones who hear the voice of the shepherd. Because the appointed ones are sheep. You see how the the scriptures all mesh together? Romans chapter 8, Paul talks about this great theme. We know that all things work together for those who love God, those who are called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He, Christ, might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He called. Whom He called... These he justified, whom he justified, these he also glorified. You see here as well, these verses here introduce the idea of predestination, being predestined. Now this isn't something separate from election. It simply provides a different angle or perspective on the same topic. The word election emphasizes that God has a people he has chosen for himself predestination that indicates that there is a purpose and a reason why he's chosen them there is something he's chosen them for they are predestined to and for something salvation and everlasting life and then in Romans 9 we we read there earlier Well, we've seen already, he says, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy and compassion on whomever I'll have compassion. It's not of him who wills or runs. It's not something in me or you that somehow managed to do this. It's of God who has shown mercy to you. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and, and, whom he wills, he hardens. He does. And this is the passage where Paul brings in the example of Jacob and Esau. And then continues Does not the potter have power over the clay? From the same lump. To make one vessel for honor. But another vessel for dishonor. Does God being God. Not have the authority. To do that. What if God wanting to show his wrath. And make his power known. Endured with much long suffering. The vessels of wrath. Prepared for destruction. Not simply judged for destruction prepared for it wow this is hard stuff and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for that glory God the Bible teaches according to his own will and purposes has chosen amongst the human race some for salvation whilst others are left for destruction. And all are known to God beforehand. He knows exactly which is which and who is who. He knows who are all the Jacobs and he knows who are all the Esau's. Writing to the Ephesians, We saw it earlier, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That's why we sang it before. Loved before the dawn of time. That we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestined us, there's a reason, there's a purpose to adoption as sons. By Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will again and again and there's a few other verses you can have a look in 2 Thessalonians 2 Timothy 2 Peter you see the apostles all affirming this glorious truth again and again this doctrine of election is mentioned and God really couldn't have made it any clearer but objections are raised quite a lot of Christians nowadays think this idea of election is awful can't possibly be true well I can't deal with all objections this morning but let me say a few things about the more common ones Ah, say some. But I notice there are two verses that you've conveniently left out this morning. The ones which throw a whole different light on the subject, they would say. Yes, I know the ones you're talking about. You mean these two verses. For whom he foreknew, he predestined. And elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God foresaw who would believe and those he chose and predestined. Didn't he? God's just able to stand back there before time began because God's eternal. He's outside of time. He's able to stand back and look forward. Ah, there are the ones who will choose me. I'll choose them. They're the ones I predestined because I can foresee them problem is it's not the word foresee that's used in those verses it's foreknow well let's think first of all about that passage with Jacob and Esau and how and why god shapes lumps of clay from the same lump but for different purposes. And that doesn't allow this conclusion. It says there that God made that choice between the two of them before they were born and before they'd done any, anything, and God didn't take into account anything that those boys would do. He simply chose. Jacob and, Esau, Jacob and Esau didn't shape themselves, one into a good one and one into a bad one, and then God foresaw them. The text of the Bible says God formed them that way from the beginning for his own purposes. He made one good and one bad. Neither do the words of John's gospel that we looked at allow this idea that we are free moral beings who make our own choice and God is able to see into the future and then chooses those who choose Christ. You did not choose me. I chose you, says Jesus. Not of works, but of him who calls, says Paul. Not of him who wills or runs, but of God who shows mercy. And so he shows mercy on whom he will show mercy. And on whom he wills, he hardens. And when the Bible speaks of God foreknowing, what does it mean? Well, in the Bible, if you're talking about things or events... The word know, K-N-O-W, means having knowledge of them. But whenever the word is used of people, it means something different. It means intimate, loving relationship. For example, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain. Now you work out for yourself what the word knew means there. It's not just the Old Testament. Matthew chapter 1. Joseph being aroused from sleep did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son and he called his name Jesus. What does the word know mean there? It's talking about that intimate loving relationship between husband and wife. To foreknow someone means to love them beforehand. From before the world was made, God set his love upon us because he foreknew us. It does not mean that he foresaw our actions. Some object, are you telling me there are people who will preach the gospel to and they'll never be saved because God hasn't chosen them? That's exactly what I have to say. That's exactly the conclusion. But that's unfair, they will say. This is unfair. No, it's not unfair. I'll tell you why. All of us are willful sinners. We sin gladly and openly. In our sin, we have no desire to be saved. In our sin, we pour scorn on God. Our hearts are firmly turned against him. Come and join us at the open air meetings one Saturday and you'll see and hear the hardness of the hearts of men and women. We hold out to them the saving good news of the Lord Jesus Christ and they simply treat him with contempt. Who do you know who tells you that they are angry with God because they want to be saved but he won't let them? Do you know anyone like that? You don't. They don't exist. People aren't queuing up outside with placards, angry, protesting, we want to be saved. When when do we want to be saved? Now, but God won't let us. That doesn't happen. They have no desire to be saved. They're exactly where they want to be. But God in his grace and mercy has chosen to save some out of that from that, that they might be treated by him in a way they don't deserve. This glorious doctrine lies at the very starting point of your salvation. God knew you, loved you, chose you, purposed to save you in Christ, and prepared you for all the blessings and privileges that you now enjoy and yet have to come. And what does all this say of him? well, he deserves our thanks and our worship and our praise for such love and such grace as this. So why bother preaching the gospel, they say, if they're already chosen? Because God hasn't only chosen those who will be saved, God has ordained how they will be saved. And it's through the preaching of the gospel that he calls those who are his sheep. So we must go out and proclaim him. Because it's through the preaching of the truth and it's through the work of the Holy Spirit that God calls his sheep to himself and they are saved. And if you're not saved this morning, what you need to do is respond to that call. If you, hear, if you hear it and you've never responded, that you would call out to Christ for salvation in repentance and faith. That's what you need to do. Because, you see, the question is not, do you know if you are one of the elect? That's not the question. The question is, do you know that you are a sinner In need of Christ as your saviour. That's the gospel. And that's the question. Do you know that you're a sinner. In need of Christ as your saviour. And if you do. Then if you've heard his voice you come. You come to him. Josiah Conda wrote these words. "'Tis not that I did choose thee, for, Lord, that could not be. "'This heart would still refuse thee, hadst thou not chosen me. "'Thou, from the sin that stained me, hast cleansed and set me free. "'Of old thou hast ordained me that I should live to thee. "'Twas sovereign mercy called me and taught my opening mind." The world had else enthralled me to heavenly glories blind. My heart owns none before thee, for thy rich grace I thirst. This knowing, if I love thee, thou must have loved me first.